Good morning, I'm Pastor Gillespie from St. John Evangelical Lutheran Church and School, Sherman Center, Random Lake, Wisconsin. Good to have you with us here today for our Congregation of Prayer, a guide for daily meditation and prayer around God's Word. It's Saturday, November 6th, 2021. What we do on Saturdays during the school year is we consider tomorrow's epistle uh, and Old Testament reading, maybe some devotional readings attached to them, or at least uh, I give you some commentary on them so that you are well-equipped to hear them tomorrow and understand uh, maybe some of the broader themes of the Sunday. Each Sunday has usually at least one or two major focuses and sometimes a few others, and uh, we can bring those out by looking at the readings. Beginning, uh, really, the Sunday after uh, All Saints Day, the church takes a turn and more or less towards the themes of judgment, Jesus coming again on the last day, uh, warnings against apostasy, that is, going, uh, or leaving the faith, etc. So there's those themes of judgment, and then they, they morph, the last three weeks of the church here, they morph into the first four weeks of the, of the new church here. So uh, the reason for that is that Advent isn't as clearly defined as the first Sunday in Advent being the beginning of the church year. In many places, the last three weeks of the church year, so depending on what Trinity Sundays you celebrate, they really belong with Advent. And what you see is you see the answer to the anxieties and the and the concerns about judgment and one's own sinfulness and the destruction that's going to come upon this earth. You see those answered in the coming of Jesus, especially as we approach Christmas, but then, of course, into Epiphany and into the, the rest of the church here and ultimately to the cross and resurrection. All right. So... <clears throat> Uh, it will be a little bit doom and gloom for the next couple of weeks, and uh, hopefully our guest preacher tomorrow will, um, uh, George, Pastor Schetzel, will bring out um, the gospel in the midst of that distress, as I will attempt to do too when I'm back uh, on Wednesday, uh, for service Wednesday evening next week. All right, but we're going to consider tomorrow's Old Testament and epistle. I have a good idea of where um, Pastor Schetzel is going with his sermon. He gave me the theme, so... He's preaching on the gospel. So that should help us prepare today. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Say our memory verse one more time for this week. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, verse 5. Our psalm this week is Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. 
Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. As I like to do on Saturdays, I share a meditation for you on the psalm. Now that we've prayed it all week, uh, then we're prepared to maybe consider what we're actually asking for here. St. Paul warned the Christian congregation at Rome, think not haughty thoughts, but fear, Romans 11, verse 20. This is nearly a quotation from Proverbs. Do not be thinking about yourself, but fear God, Proverbs 3, verse 7. Do not be thinking about yourself, but fear God. Perhaps the apostle had some special concern for the brethren in the imperial capital in this respect. For he mentioned the matter again after only a few verses, using a complex wordplay that ends or tends to elude adequate translation. For I say, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think too highly above what he ought to think, but to think with sensible thought. Romans 12 verse 3. When he warns against thinking too highly, St. Paul is not referring to exalted thought in general, but to such pretensions as serve mainly to exalt the thinker. His caution is directed against engaging in sentiments and perspectives that chiefly promote one's self-importance. You can see where we're going here with the psalm. From such texts, one gains the impression that there must have been Christians at Rome who were, quote, giving themselves airs, as we say indulging in the sorts of reflection that make them feel superior to others. This impression is further confirmed only a few verses later when St. Paul tells those Romans, quote, be mindful of one another, not setting your mind on high things, but associating with the humble. Do not be mindful about yourself. Romans 12, verse 16. The church at Rome was not the only one to be afflicted with this problem. A good measure of St. Paul's correspondence with the church at Corinth seems likewise to have been preoccupied with a group in that place which boasted of a spiritual, quote, knowledge, gnosis, not enjoyed by the rest of the congregation. To such as these, St. Paul was obliged to insist that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. If anyone thinks that he knows anything, he knows nothing, yet he ought to know. 1 Corinthians 8, verses 1 and 2. Since St. Paul himself, when he founded the church at Corinth, had deliberately forsworn any attempt to appeal to a merely human yearning for wisdom, 1 Corinthians 2, those Corinthians guilty of this fault may well have been brought to conversion by the efforts of the evangelist Apollos, whom we know to have been an especially learned man, Acts 18 and 19. We also know that there was a group at Corinth whose members actually claimed, I am of Apollos, 1 Corinthians 1 a claim that apparently caused the man himself no little embarrassment. 1 Corinthians 16. Opposite to the uppish ideas against when St. Paul warns some of the Roman and Corinthian Christians are those sentiments found in the beginning of our psalm. Quote, O Lord, my heart is not arrogant, my eyes are not haughty. I have not pursued high matters, nor marvels far above me. Right? A little different translation, but you get the idea. My heart is not arrogant. My eyes are not haughty. I have not pursued high matters, nor marvels far above me. It would be easy to interpret such texts and to view such a problem as part of 
the ongoing moral concern for humility and intellectual modesty that has burdened the history of philosophy for many centuries. Indeed, the entire legacy of uh, Socrates was built over the graves of the sophists, whom Socrates proved to be not nearly so wise as they pretended. Holy Scripture's call for humility of the mind, however, involves a great deal more than cultivating a modest epistemology, a proper respect for the limits of human thought. The human race surely did not require a special divine revelation to discourage it from thinking too highly of its mental powers. China, India, Egypt, Greece, Rome, and other places all provided sages to spread that important message to us. No, the true foundation for intellectual humility involves a great deal more than an acceptance of human limitations. It requires Christ. Indeed, faced with God's wisdom in Christ, philosophy's sane quest for mental modesty seems itself dreadfully presumptuous. It's a deep humility of the truth himself, the source of all truth, that provides adequate ground for man's proper humility of the mind. It is from Christ that our minds are fed with the milk of divine truth. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We can know nothing. Thus, our psalm goes on to pray, Were I not humble-minded, but had exalted my soul like a child deprived of its mother's milk, let that be as the recompense of my soul. So we've been talking about that with 1 Corinthians, so it's good that he, the author here brought that up. Um, we discussed it again, or I preached upon this on Wednesday evening in talking about the saints and why um, they're elevated to the class of saints, those who die in the Lord. And it's not because of their own deeds or the grand and majestic uh, wisdom that they expressed or the um, majestic deeds they accomplished in this life, but rather it's because of what Christ accomplished in them. And what Christ accomplished in them defies human reason and wisdom, right? Blessed are the poor, blessed are the weak, the meek, I should say. Blessed are the um, peacemakers. Blessed are those who um, revile, or who, when you are reviled or persecuted for righteousness sake, etc. Seems upside down, seems unwise. We should be the ones who are put up uh, as the model citizens in this world. Not according to Jesus. <clears throat> All right. Our Old Testament reading for tomorrow, again, themes of judgment tomorrow and the end times, um, is from Job chapter 14. Man who is born of woman is of few days and full of trouble. He comes forth like a flower and fades away. He flees like a shadow and does not continue. And do you open your eyes on such a one and bring me to judgment with yourself? Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you. You have appointed his limits so that he cannot pass. Look away from him that he may rest, till, like a hired man, he finishes his day. All right, so wisdom here from Job, very much like the wisdom comes from Jesus. Um, Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? No one. Right? talking about our inherent sinfulness, our original sin. Um, For our meditation on the text, just a brief word from uh, Martin Luther. This is from his monumental work, one of, uh, I think, the three works that he said, uh, if if anything was preserved that he had written, of the many things he written, this would be uh, one of them uh, that he ought to have pursued. 
or that ought to be preserved, he said. It's also referred to as the definitive statement upon um, the human will. It's called the bondage of the will, the servo arbitris, I think. I don't remember how to say it in Latin. Um, the bondage of the will. And this is referred to in the formula of Concord, one of our confessional documents that our congregation has, and I have as pastor, um, agreed um, our faithful exposition of God's word. They refer to this work um, if you want to understand what is the human will. This is in a section where Luther is dealing uh, with Erasmus's argument, Erasmus being uh, the Roman scholar, um, that he's, inter, uh, what do you want to say, corresponding with, that's the right word. And uh, this has to do with the statement in the garden uh, before the fall of man that said that everything was very good. Now, Erasmus is making the argument um, in his work that because God said everything was very good, then that means that there's an inherent goodness even in our will, all right? Uh, that has been preserved even now, all right? Luther's going to respond to that using our, our text here from, from Job. Um, the reason is that the things which God has made are very good, and that God did not say, I made you for this purpose, but I have raised you up for this purpose. First, we point out that the former, God made us very good, was said before the fall of man, when the things that God had made were very good. But it soon follows in the third chapter, Genesis 3, how man became evil when he desert, was deserted by God and left to himself. From this man, thus corrupted, all are born ungodly, including Pharaoh, as, as Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest, Ephesians 2 verse 3. God, therefore, did create Pharaoh ungodly, that is, out of an ungodly and corrupt seed, as it says, as it, it says in the Proverbs of Solomon, quote, the Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the ungodly for the day of trouble, Proverbs 16 verse 4. Hence, it does not follow that because God has created the ungodly man, therefore the latter is not ungodly. How can he help um, being ungodly when he comes from an ungodly seed? As Psalm 50, or rather Psalm 51 verse 5 says, I was conceived in sin. And Job, here's our text, who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? For although God does not make sin, yet he does not cease to fashion and multiply the nature that has been vitiated by sin through the withdrawal of the spirit, as a woodcarver might make stones out of statues out of rotten wood. Thus, as is human nature, so are men made, God creating and fashioning them out of such a nature. All right. So how can a clean come out of an unclean, right? We who are born of sinners are sinners. A son of a duck is a duck, as I like to say, <laughs> right? And But that says nothing of God's nature, and it says nothing of original, uh, the original creation, that man was born without sin originally, right? The second thing uh, to be said is that if you wish the words, quote, they were very good to be understood of the works of God after the fall, you will observe that they are spoken not by uh, not of us, but of God. For it does not say man saw the things which God had made, and they were very good. Many things as seen by God are very good, which as seen by us are very bad. This is what we've been talking about. Thus, afflictions, calamities, errors, hell, and indeed all the best works of God are in the world's eyes very bad and damnable. What is better than Christ and the gospel? Yet what is more 
uh, execrated. Is that how you pronounce that? It's, it's a, is there a way for me to make it say that? Uh, I don't know how to make it speak it. Uh, execrated by the world. What is more execrated by the world? Consequently, how, thing, how things can be good in God's sight, which are evil to us, only God knows. And those who see with God's eyes, that is, who have the Spirit. But there is no need to argue such a subtle point as that just yet. The preceding answer is enough for the present. All right. So what uh, this whole section Luther is dealing with, this um, idea that Erasmus has, and actually all medieval uh, papists, even really modern papists have, is that there is some inherent goodness in every man before God, right? Now there is, of course, inherent goodness and inherent goodwill um, towards one another. And sometimes that's broken and, and people are malicious and, and hurt and harm each other. I would say they always do just to more or less... Um, more or less degrees, right? Some being more evil in their actions and deeds and others keeping that that inherent evil in their heart, right? And this is hard for Christians to understand because we have, um, by our baptism and through God's word and the regular reception of uh, the word of forgiveness, we have the spirit. We have the Holy Spirit. We have Christ's spirit. And so we have, the, we cannot comprehend the idea um, that there are those um, who have evil and malicious intent because we uh, have a conscience that's been informed by God's word and is at, and the spirit is at work in that conscience, right? To always bring us to correction, to show us our, our evil, to show us the, the ill intent in our hearts, right? And to bring us to repentance and the forgiveness of sins and amendment of life, right? So that's why we don't understand as Christians, uh, especially those of us who are baptized as, as young people who never lived apart from God, the Holy Spirit, uh, apart from God's word, we can't understand or comprehend how um, people could be so evil as you've heard it said. And I think that's I think that's Erasmus's problem too. Um, he does not comprehend being in in a largely Christian context. He doesn't comprehend uh, that people are fully corrupt in the way that Paul does. Now Paul understands it because he did live apart from God's word and apart from the Holy Spirit for a time, right? And that's why. Um, Ephesians 2, for example, is such a, a, a wonderful exposition on that, right? And I think David understands it too, because um, with his sin of Bathsheba, he is um, completely living apart from faith, right? And it, and it takes a preacher to come to him and to call him out of his um, sinful rebellion, all right? Um, and so maybe we can understand to a, a certain degree, but, but the idea that, that man's will is always always contrary to God's will. Uh, that's a hard thing for us to get our heads around, especially as Christians. Uh, maybe maybe though we should listen to those who have converted from unbelief into, into belief, been converted by the Spirit, um, because they tend to have more insight into the corruption of man and the great evil that is um, this world and uh, life in this world. All right. So when, when uh, and, and then the other point I should make is that uh, Erasmus fails to recognize the he doesn't read the context of God's statement that um, all things were very good is that he forgets about then the fall into sin the rebellion of Adam and Eve and the way that all creation was corrupted as a result as well all right good so that may the, some of those themes may come out in uh, Pastor Schetzel's sermon tomorrow we'll see all right and then our uh, epistle for tomorrow Speaking of St. Paul, is from 1 Thessalonians, Thessalonians 4. 
But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. All right, as I said, um, yes, there are themes of judgment and sin and the destruction of all things and Christ coming again on the last day uh, and fire and brimstone and that sort of thing. Um, but you can see here with the appointed epistle that comfort one another with these words that we who are dead will be caught up with, or we who are alive will be caught up with those who are dead when the Lord comes, if we have not already died ourselves, and will be with the Lord in the air. Right? Now, this is a text um, that's often heard um, either in the funeral service, our funeral service, or um, almost, I, I read it frequently at committals, right? So after the service, when we go to the graveside to commit the body of our uh, brother or sister to the ground, that um, this is one of those texts that I would read. Sometimes also um, with the family at, um, uh, at the viewing of the body before the beginning of, say, a, a visitation, all right? So um, it's commonly used, funeral text, and it's coincidentally was one of the funeral texts that was preached on for Luther, Dr. Martin Luther, when he died, right? So last week was Reformation Sunday, so this is appropriate for us. Um, they actually had two days worth of funeral services for Dr. Luther. <laughs> well, he was a monumental figure, really, um, and quite important to many. So one of his students, uh, Justice Jonas, who died in 1555, um, so, you know, maybe... 16 years after Luther, all right, so just a little bit younger than Luther. Um, he preached, I think, the first sermon at the first service, which was on February 19th, 1546, for, for Luther. And he preached on this text. Um, but actually, it's an interesting funeral sermon because he preaches funerals much like we do, where we remember um, what God accomplishes um, in and through the one who has died. Uh, let's see, he has it broken down into three parts. Let me make sure I get this right. Uh, so first, yes, um, the, the gifts that God gave to Martin Luther, his profound understanding of spiritual things, and then how he in particular prepared um, for a peaceful death, a death with the Lord. Right? So he kind of gives uh, you know, the context um, from his firsthand account, and then he's going to deal with the resurrection of the dead, preaching on this text from 1 Thessalonians. And then third, um, talking about um, how <laughs> the assurance of uh, of the death of Martin Luther being um, confident, unlike that of the Papists, where um, with purgatory and and whatnot, that uh, they don't have confidence that the dead are actually resting in peace with the Lord. Right. But the second part on the resurrection of the dead uses this text. So I thought I'd share a little bit of this funeral sermon for you. Saint Paul says plainly in the text that those who are those that sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. The Christian comforts himself with these words, and he that is not comforted by them may not presume to think himself a Christian. This text is so rich and consoling as to be more precious than gold. A Christian holds fast to this truth, derives great comfort from it, and believes firmly that he, with all other Christians, will rise again at the last day. 
An ungodly Epicurean swine finds no comfort in the words of St. Paul. He finds pleasure only in his gold and possessions, his avarice and usury. For he neither knows nor believes that he will rise again at the last day, or that he will again see those who now live with him or who have lived before him. St. Paul, however, says, The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trump of God. The Lord is great, and great too must be his triumph and glory. But an Epicurean does not concern himself with these words, does not take them to himself. To a true Christian heart, however, they are pure pure, uh, pearls and most precious treasures. St. Paul held this doctrine to be a great and special mystery, of which the world knew nothing, which he here uttered to the Christians concerning the resurrections of the dead. And he concludes his statement with these words, comfort one another with these words. As if he would say, behold, I will reveal to you a heavenly mystery, namely the world and all men whom you see in it, old and young, rich and poor, must descend to the dust. That is, they must die and be buried as well as the Christian, as he that is not a Christian. But after this, at the last day, flesh and blood, notwithstanding they had been eaten by of worms and had rotted and decayed in the ground, shall again come forth and rise in great glory. As St. Paul in the first 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians has clearly made known to us. It is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. When therefore a dear friend dies, we may have the consolation to see him again at that last day. In the same way, St. Paul comforted himself in view of the imprisonment and death that awaited him uh, from the cruel and bloodthirsty tyrant Nero at Rome. Even though he should be tortured and put to death, he, with all men, would rise again at the last day. So, too, all the children that are born or that are yet to be born, for this life consists of being born, living, and dying, will, with their bodies, rise again. A joyful, happy day will come, the day of redemption, as Jesus calls it in Luke 21, verse 28. After the vicissitudes of life and death, a joyful day will come. There will then be no more marrying or giving in marriage, no more birth of children, no more becoming lame, blind, or sick, no more death, no for mortality shall cease, and an immortal, everlasting life shall begin to be. St. Paul further says, And the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. This is a beautiful golden text, and great comfort is, is in it for Christians which we may cherish all our life long, and with which we may console ourselves amid all earthly sorrows, earth sorrows. The Lord shall descend from heaven with a shout, says St. Paul. We shall arise from the dead and ever be with the Lord. Of this the world knows nothing, neither rejoice in it, nor comforts itself with it, but finds its pleasure only in its money and goods. St. Paul intends by these words to say, My dear Christians, Although you should lose me, who am your bishop, minister, and shepherd in Christ, who cares for your souls, nevertheless, I will rise again, and will certainly see you again as my spiritual children in yonder world, and you will see me likewise forever. He says, Christ will come with a shout. The shout will be loud, and will be made by the voice of the archangel and the trump of God. It will awake the dead. Then they that have gone to sleep in Jesus in the true pure faith will rise first. Afterwards, they that are alive will be caught up together with them in the clouds. So also Jesus says in John 5, 28 and 29, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming, when all that are in their graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. 
Together with the first will our dear Father, Dr. Martin Luther, of blessed memory, also rise with the same body, face, hands, feet, which he had, and as we saw him here, and with the blessed lips, which for 29 whole years preached God's word purely to the people of Germany. But he will come forth with a glorified body that will shine as the sun, as Christ has said in Matthew 13:43. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And as Daniel has foretold, 12 verse 3, they that be wise shall shine as the brightness of the firmament, and they that have turned many to righteousness as the stars forever and ever. As now Dr. Martin was a wise and great teacher who turned many, very many, to righteousness, he will also shine as the stars before others, and so God will. We too will see him. Pretty terrific uh, sermon, right? And that's only part of it. Uh, What a way to preach for your teacher's funeral. Okay, our catechism for this week is the explanation to the second article. What does this mean? Say it with me. I believe that Jesus Christ, true God, begotten of the Father from eternity, and also true man, born of the Virgin Mary, is my Lord, who has redeemed me, a lost and condemned person, purchased and won me from all sins, from death and from the power of the devil, not with gold or silver, but with his holy precious blood and with his innocent suffering and death that I may be his own and live under him in his kingdom and serve him in everlasting righteousness, innocence, and blessedness, just as he is risen from the dead, lives and reigns to all eternity. This is most certainly true. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, to redeem us from sin, death, and the power of the devil. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried, taking all of the punishment that we deserved for our sin upon himself. He descended into hell, proclaiming his victory over the devil, and on the third day he rose again from the dead, preaching the forgiveness of sins and the promise of eternal life in his name to the whole world. We give thanks to you for all that your Son has done for us. Help us to know and believe in Jesus. He has now ascended into heaven and sits at your right hand as our Savior and Lord. All the enemies of sin, death, and hell have been placed under his feet, and he now rules over all things for the sake of his church. Give us fervent faith in Jesus and the blessed hope that he will come again to judge the living and the dead, giving the gift of eternal salvation to all who believe in him. Through the same Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Pray the Collect for this week. Almighty and gracious Lord, pour out your Holy Spirit on your faithful people. Keep us steadfast in your grace and truth. Protect and deliver us in times of temptation. Defend us against all enemies and grant to your church your saving peace. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. We pray on this Saturday for faithfulness to the end, for the renewal of those who are withering in the faith or have fallen away, for pastors as they prepare to administer Christ's holy gifts, and for receptive hearts and minds on the Lord's day. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. We pray this day in Thanksgiving with Amy and Brooke, who celebrate their birthday. We pray for our households, especially that of Jessica, Alex and Emmy, Emma, Jim and Elaine, Ashley, Robert, and Jim and Karen. Pray for those ill receiving treatment or recovering, especially Marcella, Kelsey, Ron, Joel, Amanda, 
Dan, Timothy, and Janice, Sandy, Ken, Norman, Sandy, Kathy, and Mike, our homebound Bev, David, Roy, Willis, Mickey, and Paul, the missions and mercy work of the church, especially the Federowitz family. We pray for victory over the world, for those grieving, especially that of John Herzog. Let us pray to the Lord. Lord, have mercy. Pray the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger, and I pray that you would keep me this day also from sin and every evil, that all my doings and life may please you. For into your hands I commend myself, my body and soul, and all things. Let your holy angel be with me, that the evil foe may have no power over me. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. All right, we sing our hymn, Salvation Unto Us Has Come, stanzas 6 through 10. Can by its fruits true faith 
known with love and hope increasing. For faith alone can justify, work serve our neighbor and supply the proof that faith is Sing on earth thanks and praise to Father, Son, and Spirit, the God who saved us by His grace. All glory to His merit. For triune God in heaven above, you have revealed your saving love, your blessed day. We All right, so good to have you with us here today for our Congregation of Prayer, Guide for Daily Meditation and Prayer Around God's Word. Hopefully that helps you uh, prepare for tomorrow's divine service, and uh, you might go look at the gospel text as well, although I'm sure Pastor Schetzel will do a great job with that. Uh, be patient with him. He hasn't been here for a while. Um, it's I do things by the book, but uh, well, everybody has their own peculiar quirks, right? Every pastor is a little unique in how he conducts the service, so uh, be patient with that. Um, I do want to make one other note before you leave, so hopefully you're still there. Um, if perhaps uh, you've encountered the local kind of uptick in, in COVID-related illness, um, I would encourage you to use your best judgment and to take risk assessment as to whether or not um, you attend in person or not. Uh, I know there was an exposure in the school and I've been taking some precaution as a result of that. I haven't been making visits to nursing homes, those who are at high risk. Um, but, you know, this is pretty much true with every kind of bacterial or viral infection. Um, if, you, if you're ill, you stay home. If you're not ill, um, you know, use your best judgment and be, you know, take precautions as necessary, right? So uh, I'm not too worried about people who have, a, have the sniffles or a cold um, or have allergies this time of year. Um, if you've got flu symptoms, if you're throwing up, that kind of thing, maybe stay home. If you've got a fever, that sort of thing, stay home. But use your best judgment. As far as risk assessment goes, um, the whole notion of, um, what was it called? I just lost the word. Uh, asymptomatic transmission um, is impossible, or nearly impossible, if not completely impossible to prove. Uh, I'm not saying it doesn't exist, um, but it's also not something that we can live our life by because. Um, you know, the, the, the trade-off of loss of life or uh, livelihood or um, even just the receiving of God's word and sacrament here, um, when you might transmit a, a virus that you don't actually have symptoms for and you don't seem to be sick from, that seems a little superstitious and nonsensical. Um, even if it's possible that it's true, there's no way to verify that and uh, we really can't live our life by that. That's my opinion. That's my pastoral direction for you. It's not from God's word, so take it or leave it as you would. All right. But like I said, take you know, make risk assessments. Judge, um, judge what you think is is best based off of the available information, uh, based off your own observation of your body and life, um, and also those who you suspect uh, might be at high risk. If you are at high risk, maybe you might take more precautions than usual. All right. So there you go. Um, Lord be with you all. Keep you safe, and uh, we'll. 
see you again on Monday for Congregation of Prayer. Um, or you'll, you won't see me tomorrow, but you can see one another tomorrow for divine service at 9.30 a.m. here at Sherman Center. Lord be with you all, and we'll see you soon.